The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. For this morning is from Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, God our Savior. You may be seated. Um, we are glad you're here. My name is Ben. Um, you could be anywhere this morning and you're here. Uh, whatever brought you into this room, we're honored with your presence. Uh, we're looking at a passage that certainly uh, needs to be unpacked because at first glance there are uh, rigorous things in it. And so I first want to begin with telling a story. Uh, In the 1500s, the Pieta is a statue that Michelangelo made, and it's the first statue that he signed, and the only statue that he signed. This one statue bearing his name uh, showed Mary holding the crucified Christ. And it sat safely in the Vatican uh, until 1971, because in 1971, a mentally ill man came in with a hammer, jumped the barrier, ran past security, and began to hack at the Pieta, damaging Mary's uh, ear, her veil, and her arm. This left shards everywhere, some big, some tiny, as small as a fingernail. Uh, It was in pieces. And so as the dust settled, figuratively and literally, uh, experts came in and began to redo and respackle and remake the Pieta? How, how do they make something so beautiful? The one thing that Michelangelo signed, how do they restruct it? How do they make it good again, beautiful again? And they began a process called integral restoration, where they took this invisible glue and they got all these pieces and, and five months later, it was restored. Uh, what I would say to you this morning is you and I are God's pieta. We are the the one thing that he has made, that that he has set his image in. He has signed with his name. That we are that, and we, like the statue, have been marred and broken and attacked, not with the hammer, but with lies. It's the things that destruct us and make us not more human, uh, but less human as we live in light of lies we ingest and take in as truth. And so this morning, we'll uh, go through a lot. We'll, we'll look at three things. First, uh, the need of truth. Second, the, the instruction of truth. And third, the emancipation of truth. And so obviously, at first glance, there are rigorous things in this passage. There are things that 
uh, may not sit well with us. Uh, we pick uh, books of the Bible to walk through and uh, go through as a community, uh, knowing that there are sometimes hard things. And we wade through them, trusting the Lord will do something with it as uh, he has in the past and always will. And so uh, I've gotten a lot of help from friends uh, like Joe Novenson and Brian Salter on this, this topic. Um, but if something doesn't sit well with you, like every week, but, but certainly this week, uh, come find me, uh, shoot me an email. Uh, this is something that we long for conversation in and long to know uh, where you are and how things hit and, and we can walk through things. And so with that in mind, uh, let me pray as we begin the study of, of Titus 2. Lord, you are uh, the one who has authored it all. And in your benevolence and in your grace, and Lord, in your generosity, you have given us the, your image. And you've signed us, and we are your masterpiece. And what a beautiful thing it is to be the masterpiece of the living God. And so this day, may we see the beauty of that and may we also acknowledge and pinpoint the destruction that has taken place to your masterpiece and also, and most importantly, see how you have moved toward us in reconstruction as we become more human and more full and more redeemed, all because of the one we gather in the name of, which is Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So we are picking up in chapter 2 of Titus. It's helpful to know the landscape of where we are. What has happened in chapter 1? And let's zoom out. So Titus is this uh, pastor in Crete. Crete is this island um, that's beautiful and gorgeous in the Roman Empire. And, and Titus is getting this letter from Paul who's far off. And Paul's writing to him about um, how to uh, make his community whole again and write again, because there are things that have happened in Crete and the church in Crete that have gone sideways and, and really gone south. And so Crete was this place that um, in the Roman Empire often, they would send retired soldiers and different mercenaries that worked for the government to these new places to both honor them in retirement and supply them, but also make sure there's still order and the Roman way of life lives on. It's genius the way they do it. And, and in that, this place with all these old ex-Roman soldiers, uh, they were known for things like violence and sexual corruption and greed and so many other things that history teaches us about Crete. Uh, one of Crete's own philosophers, Epimenides, said this. He said, um, Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. This was what Cretans said about Cretans. It was well known that that's what the way of life was. And, and for whatever reason, that way of life had crept into the church that Titus was in charge of. And things began to really get uh, hairy and wrong and twisted. And these new leaders that had come into the church, these Cretan leaders, had begun to teach all these different false teachings, all for profit. And so Paul is writing this new truth to combat and make right the false teachings. So that's where we are. So the first thing we look at this morning is the need for truth, that we need truth. And Paul writes and he says to this people that have gone, uh, things have gone south and all because of false teaching, he doesn't say, um, do to them like they did to you. Take power back just like they took power from you. They don't say, give them the upper cut. He says to them, 
this. In verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says, don't retaliate. Instead, do this. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. His strategy is to um, meet false teaching with good teaching. Recalibrate the whole entire life with truth. With truth. Now, you think, okay, that's, that's right, Paul. We need more truth. Truth, yes. And what I would say maybe to that approach, that one side, is truth there is more like a hammer. And that the Christian church at times has used truth as a hammer. A hammer. Um, the church has used a truth like we know it all and have it all and, and bludgeoned people with the hammer of truth. And that's not the purpose of truth of biblical truth, gospel truth. And also, there's the other side of the spectrum where we're told that, that teach with sound doctrine and, and, and live in truth. But it's just a small reminder of how we're failing. It's a small reminder of, oh, there's just one more thing to, to keep up with, right? And it's impossible to get it all right. It's just a reminder of how I'm failing. And Paul is saying neither of those things. It's not, he's not talking about be powerful. And he's not talking about you're powerless, He's saying this different thing. He says sound doctrine. The word sound here is this Greek word. And this Greek word is uh, hygienos. It's where we get our word for hygiene. So he's saying teach healthy doctrine. And teach, have teachings that are, are filled with hygiene, things that, that produce life and sustenance and good living. Teach that. Because so much of it is not that. It's not been that. And so he's saying, teach good truth. Teach sound doctrine. Because oftentimes, lies uh, weasel their way into our lives, and they become the things that mar us. That, that we actually begin to believe lies over truth because it's so easy. And it, it's so easy to believe lies because they they give us a construct of why things happen, that they explain everything. One small example is that we, we often begin to have these narratives that we create about the world around us, and we can notice when we do that when we say the word because. Now, I'm not saying because is a bad word. I say it all the time, um, so I'm guilty of that. I'm saying in, in the sake, for the sake of self-analysis and self-awareness, we use the word because and we say, well, you know, that guy, oh man, he said that to me because he's fill in the blank. Or man, that, that, that girl over there is treating me this way because fill in the blank. And we construct these narratives that oftentimes aren't truthful. And if they are truthful, they have the, uh, an iota, an ounce of truth, and yet everything else is false. We begin to construct narratives to explain life. And that's because we are malleable creatures. We need truth. We need some narrative to explain why we are and why the world is. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, the serpent came to them. And all the serpent said was a question. Did God really say? Now, the serpent wasn't saying, trust me more than, this, than, than your God. He was just giving the tiniest bit of lies that fed a forest fire of untruth. 
the ability to, to think and doubt. Maybe God isn't that good. Maybe, maybe God doesn't want what's best for me. So I'll take things into control. We, we long for truth because we have narratives that we construct in all of life. It's just a part of who we are. We ingest whatever we can to explain our lives, and at times we add truth to those truths. And oftentimes the truths that we add are in fact lies. One book that C.S. Lewis wrote was called The Screwtape Letters. And The Screwtape Letters, it's, this, um, it's about this kind of the, the idea of Christian living, but it's actually from uh, the perspective of Satan and his workers, not God. And so this uh, book called The Screwtape Letters is letters to and from a junior devil and a senior devil. And so they're writing back and forth to one another and how they can entangle and entrap uh, humanity and, and how to get them. What's the strategies? And one thing that, that it says in the screw tape letters that the senior devil is writing to the junior devil and saying, here's a strategy that works. Here's something that, that I've known. To entangle humanity, he says this. He says, a moderated religion is as good as no religion at all and more amusing. A moderated religion is as good as no religion at all. That, that we moderate the truths of God about us to explain our lives. And we moderate it by bringing in things that we like because we benefit from both having uh, believing in God and lies also. Or maybe even not believing in God at all. And here's the truth. It's so easy to do that. We all try to construct narratives that work for us, lies that create a divided heart in us. And so this morning, I would ask you questions. What lies have made you less human than more? The things that we believe, the narrative structures, the way life works, the way we explain things, what are things that you've believed? Because I certainly have some. Things that say, I am only as important as the greatest thing I've done. I'm important as the worst thing that I've ever done. Or that I am who people say that I am. That what they say of me is totally true. I'm only as good as that. Or, or maybe lies that say like, I'm alone and I'll always be alone. There's no one there for me. I'm such a broken piece of equipment. How could anyone love me? Or maybe even more arrogant lies that say, oh, people should be so glad I'm here. Right? What are the lies that we believe that construct the narratives of how we live? The things that explain things away. The word because. What are the things that show that we need a truth that does things for us and to us and changes us? What are things and narratives we're believing when we in fact need a hygiene of truth, sound doctrine? So what happened in Crete and it's happened with us. So we know we need truth, but, but second, Paul gives instructions of truth. And this is where it's a majority of the passage and also where things can uh, initially, at first glance, become extremely difficult. Uh, this passage is one that's certainly dense and, and weighty, uh, but he's giving truth to instruct the church there. That is to say, he's not giving it to them just to have in their back pocket to think, oh, we have the truth, yay. He wants them to take it in and ingest it and change them. That, that truth they take in doesn't just sit with them, but it flows from them. It's for everyone else. 
And so the truth that he gives them is because there are things that have gone wrong. In verse 5, he talks about how God's word is discredited. And in verse 8, he talks about how, how people can rightfully bring accusations against Christians. And in verse 10, he, he points out how the, the, the witness of Christianity is not compelling at all. All of which can be true today and are true today. Which means this truth is helpful for us. Because Paul here is giving instructions to a specific community. So uh, another way to say that is, it's helpful to know the world that it's, these words are spoken into. We are in the modern world, this world. So we need to know what that world was like. Because it's extremely helpful to know exactly what is being said here. And Paul here is saying, I want to y'all to have a restored, healed community. Right? And, and he talks about gossip, not because it's this platitude that you shouldn't do. He talks about gossip and slander because people are gossiping and slandering and it's causing division in the community. He's talking about sobriety, <coughs> excuse me, because people were getting uh, drunk and, 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 and it was uh, killing this community, causing division and hurt and harm. He's talking about uh, loving your spouse because there were spouses that were loving others besides their spouse. So here, these instructions are, are a reaction and a response that are helpfully inform how to live. And these instructions show us two things. Paul says and gets at the point that you are to live empowered lives that are marked with self-control and sacrificial love. Self-control, right? We, we need to control ourselves because oftentimes when we don't, we can hurt others. And also, it's not just about us. It's about moving towards others and sacrificial love, right? Sacrificing with them in mind, not the selfishness in mind. Again, something that's so easy. And yet he says, to be marked with, by a beautiful community, self-control and sacrificial love. And he talks about those two things into two scenarios, of that day, the home and the workplace. So first, the home. What, what did the home look like then? He's saying, don't forsake your responsibility in being in relationship in the home. And in the home, there was uh, two to three generations living. And those two to three generations uh, would then, during the day, go work on the family farm or in the agrarian business. I doubt that's your reality right now. I'd be hard-pressed. If you are, more power to you. I've lived with my in-laws and my in-laws have lived with me. It was amazing and so fun. That was my mother-in-law. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I have, I have wonderful family. So that being said, family was uh, intense. It was the way life was. And so Paul is saying here, don't splinter the place that you call home, the family you reside in, the relationships you have. Don't act wrong in them because they are beautiful places for redemption and beauty to be shown and bloomed. So we see that there's a reality in the homes of a multi-generational kind of facet, but also um, in marriages in that day were arranged. There are not arranged marriages really today, uh, it's not the case because for us, there's this long love story of dating and, and meeting and then engagement and a hashtag for a wedding and all those different things. 
And that's just not the way it was for them. And so for Paul, he's speaking to people who have arranged marriages, and he's saying, cultivate a, a relationship of love that moves towards one another, not away. So those are the things that he's speaking into, the, the reality of that world. And he talks to four demographics in the home. First, he talks to the older men. In verse 2, he says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I'm not an old man, um, but oftentimes, um, so I've been told, old men can sometimes have a malfunction of being um, kind of cynical curmudgeons, the wet blanket, half glass empty, that kind of thing. Because when you get older, you can explain things away because you know more in life and you live more life. Or maybe as an older man that you're resigned to, to irrelevance um, because you just have gray hairs and that's all you are. And here Paul is saying, actually, do all of these things, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. He's saying all of this because he's saying to the older men, you have so much to offer. Actually, the gray hairs in your head or no hair at all points to the fact that you've lived life and those life experiences have not beaten you and defeated you, but actually they've helped make hope more real to you. Because in the Christian faith, those things that are hard in life have currency for good. So for older men, he gives them that beautiful instructive. And he goes on for, for uh, older women, Verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous or slaves to too much wine. They're to teach what is good. Again, he's speaking into a situation of things that are happening, i.e. slander and too much wine, drunkenness. Those two things are not gender specific. I wanna say that very explicitly. And so when, I, when this instruction is given, I know that it's not simply just to women, but to men too. He's saying those two things, both of the drunkenness that is causing strain in relationships and the slander that's hurting others as you're using them and degrading them for your own benefit, those things aren't helpful for building up a community and existing in a relationship of self-control and self-sacrifice. But to the women, he's telling them these things because he's saying to them, women, you have an audience not to put pressure on you to be perfect and think every, have everything together. He's saying, women, you have an audience because you have so much power. And you have so much influence and so much sway. That's why you should not do those things. It's because you help mold people around you, whether you know it or not, because you're so empowered with the beauty of God. That, that men and, and women are both, uh, in some divine mystery, show who God is even as we're different. And so he's saying to women, know that you have so much influence and power. And he goes on to talk about younger women in verse four and five. Uh, so to the older women, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be uh, not be reviled. Now, uh, this seems like a powder keg, doesn't it? Um, you think, Paul, why did you say this? It's extremely restrictive and regressive and antiquated. Why, Paul, are you saying things like this? Again, he's saying things 
like submission to husbands and honoring husbands and loving husbands because that just simply wasn't the case. And in fact, it was the opposite. The, the women were moving away towards others other than their husband and hurting that, that marriage relationship just as men do as well. And, and he's saying, uh, stay at the home. He's saying, work at home. I want to say extremely explicitly, Paul is not giving a mandate and all across the board that women have to stay at home and be home time, full-time homemakers. That is not what Paul is saying because that had it wasn't even an inkling in Paul's mind. He's not saying that you have to stay at home, women. That's your place. Again, those words, these verses have been misapplied in very wrong ways and hurtful ways and harmful ways. Instead, we see Paul is saying, don't neglect the people that you're called to love, your family and your friends. Because in the Bible, it's not simply saying women stay at home. Paul's not saying that, as I said, but also other places in the Bible it says that. It talks about women in the marketplace in Proverbs 31, this this amazing, big, large um, chapter showing how uh, godly women live and act. So no, that, that wasn't Paul's intention. Paul's intention was saying, just like he said to everyone else, be marked with self-control and sacrificial love to others. And then lastly, it says, in addition to younger women for younger men, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled because oftentimes the malfunction in youth is to, to have the flavor of the month. Right, right? Know that there's a get-out-of-jail-free card at all times. Oftentimes, uh, immature people that we see act as if there's no consequences and don't, don't act with self-control and maturity and wisdom. And here Paul is saying, grow up in the sense of know that your life is important. Know that you have a lot to learn and learn from the older men and the older women and know that you have a place in society and you can grow up in a way that's responsible and beautiful as you take ownership of your life. Now, all those things are the home, as you live in relationship in the home. But Paul also goes on to talk about the workplace in verses 9 and 10. And in that day, again, context is key here, in that day, uh, slaves and bondservants were a thing. It says in this passage, it talks about the slaves or bondservants, whatever translation you're using. And their version of slavery was not our version of slavery. The Roman version of slavery was not the American South. It was absolutely not. So as we look back and see that word and have things rile up in us, know that that wasn't the reality. (coughs) Excuse me. This verse says, bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. In that day, bond servants were people who uh, uh, existed in relationship with their master or their employer. That, that actually it was a good thing to be a slave or a bondservant over a free man because you were safe and you had a paycheck and you had a place to stay and food. And actually a third of the Roman Empire was a bondservant. And half of the city of Rome was a bondservant. And you could hold office and run businesses. That's the bondservant. And yet, in modernity, recently in history, this has been misapplied in such ways that evil has occurred. 
There's no but after that. It's a plain fact. The misapplication of that verse has, has been gross in detail and in reality. It doesn't sit well with us and it doesn't sit well with Jesus. The misapplication of that, the enslavement of others. But here, Paul is talking about bondservants submitting to masters because he's saying to them, power has never been uh, gotten through upheaval, through revolt and rebellion. He's saying, love your masters and seek their benefit, a self-sacrificial love. So in the home and in the workplace, be marked with self-sacrifice and self-control. All because he's saying those things are to be embodied by the church in Crete, by the church in Chattanooga today, all because it's how God himself exists. In his triune nature, God exists in self-control and self-submission to the other members of the Godhead. And in fact, Jesus did the same. He didn't win power because he had a revolution or a revolt. He did it through self-control and self-sacrificial love. If you've seen in different places like churches or art galleries or uh, maybe restaurants, wherever you've been, um, stained glass windows. Stained glass windows are this perfect array of these different pieces that are different sizes and, and, and different colors and, and different ways. And they come together and they bond together to make this beautiful picture that when they fit together perfectly and the light shines in on it, beauty is radiated. Right? It's amplified. You can see so many different things, and each color and each piece accentuates the others so well. Paul is saying here in the home, in the workplace, as you embody self submission, or excuse me, uh, self control and sacrificial love, he's saying fit together like a stained glass window. Don't malfunction and like a rogue piece, cut other pieces. He's saying fit together well, bond together well in a, such a way that radiates the beauty of others and the community around you because you play such a perfect piece. What I would say to you this morning is what piece of glass are you as you fit into a community? Because God did not make you to be ordinary. Again, we are his pieta. We are the ones that bear his image, his masterpiece. And because of that, he longs for his light to shine in on a glass window that we are a part of and shine his beauty through to the watching world. Have we failed at that? Absolutely. As pieces of glass, have we cut others? Absolutely. And yet Paul is saying to the church in Crete and to the church in Chattanooga in 2021, you have so much to offer in the beautiful tapestry, the beautiful picture of a stained glass window as we're different and we fit together beautifully and show beauty. So we see the instruction of truth in that way and how it involves them in their communal life and how it involves us in our communal life. That We have a purpose. We have beauty in each and every one of you. But also he, he ends with this idea of an emancipating truth, how, how truth emancipates us, this third idea. How truth uh, emancipates us. We know we need it. We know how it tells us to do stuff, the instruction of it, but, but why is it good? Why is truth helpful to their community? Why is it really going to change things? 
Uh, David Brooks is a New York Times uh, columnist, and he, and he writes for the New York Times as well as other stuff. And in his book, A Road to Character, he said this. He said, uh, we don't become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves. Education is a process of love formation. When you go to school, it should offer you new things to love. The truth of Christianity, the truth of the gospel, is not a transfer of information. It's not to give you something new or something more so that you can have it cerebrally. It's something that you're to take in and ingest and have it change you. That's what this is. That's what the table is. The Christian faith frees us because it shows us how God has freed us. How truth doesn't just exist alone, but it exists because of God's great compassion. And he gives us an instructing truth to help and love us. This passage ends in verse 10 with this. It says, so that in everything, all the instruction given, so that in everything, they, the watching world, may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Truth frees us and takes our ego away and it places it with something beautiful. And in fact, the word adorn here talks about a diamond, that you set a diamond in the middle and all the jewels around it point to the beauty of the centerpiece. And he's saying, be a community that adorns the way your God has moved towards you in great compassion and in truth. I was talking this week about, uh, to a friend who goes to church here, and he grew up in church and um, had uh, some angsty years of really wrestling with what Christianity was and really wrestling with uh, how the truth of Christianity is effective or how it works because it seems like Christians are unhelpful. And, and uh, he said he would be antagonistic towards Christianity and critical towards it. And he said, finally, uh, he began to have things change. And so I asked him, I said, well, how did the truth of Christianity, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm preaching on truth this week, how it shapes us and changes us. How does truth of Christianity change you? How did it change you in your journey of following Jesus again? And he said this, he said, truth only affected me when I realized the magnitude of the cross. That truth is only good because there is blood behind it. Because, because there is sacrifice behind it. Because it's not just a lofty thought that's helpful. It's something that has bones and blood. Truth is only good and freeing because the shackles are off of us and they're on someone else. And they're on the person of Christ. And he gladly and willfully takes it on himself. That truth changes us because it's a love that we've acquired with. Not, a, not an information but something we have skin and bones. Christ did not come in principle of truth. He came in person of truth. In 1 John 14, it says, uh, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and of truth. And as God's masterpiece, he's saying, be shaped and intricately restored with grace in truth, because it's the very things that Christ was full of. Maybe your Christian life has only been truth, only been convictions, and you need to have a, 
a realization that Christ came full of both grace and truth and you have compassion become a category because Christ has compassion towards you. And maybe um, compassion is such a big thing as you, you revel in grace. It's a beautiful way of life. And maybe it's helpful to know for you that both grace is uh, the reality and truth is too as Christ offers such redemption. He offers himself as the one of truth, the one who is absolute, the one who offers so much life. He is, I am. Grace and truth, things that embody the person of truth, things that embody this table as we're about to partake in it. That we take it in, it's the narrative of our life that say things to us about who we are and how we're loved and how we're thought of and how we're esteemed. That's the story we begin to tap into as we see truth frees us to eat and dine with the one that has taken our shackles and freed us. Let's pray.